If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to the book of John, the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament, one of the four inspired accounts we have of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I've actually just uh, been reading through this book and recently finished it, and when I got to the last chapter, uh, there was something that really hit home with me, and so uh, I thought God would have me share that with you today. Uh, when you get to John chapter 21, there's this this conversation that happens between Jesus and Peter, who in many ways is the lead disciple, and there is something in this conversation that I found to be extremely helpful and, and powerful when life gets really difficult. Kind of like the way the last year or so has been for many people. Many things that we just sort of took for granted suddenly became very uncertain. And maybe something you were really counting on uh, got taken away. Maybe a job, maybe school, uh, maybe just hanging out with friends and family. Um, maybe you had some big plans that got canceled. Or maybe, maybe you or someone you love really struggled with serious illness. In fact, maybe... You lost someone you love. One way or another, life went a direction that you really didn't want it to go. What does Jesus have to say about times like that? Is there something he wants us to know? Because at Easter, you know, we're celebrating his victory over death. What does knowing this death-conquering Lord, what difference does that make when life gets really, really hard? So I just want to sort of set the scene here. I'm just going to kind of summarize the first part of the chapter, and then, then we'll get to the conversation. So this, this is an encounter that takes place between Jesus and his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. That's actually where the region where several of his disciples were from. And after Jesus was raised from the dead, and uh, they're sort of awaiting further instructions, some of them decide to go fishing. That's actually what some of their, uh, some of them, that was their trade before they met Jesus. So they, they go up to the Sea of Galilee, they're going to fish. And it doesn't turn out well at all. It says they, they fished all night and caught nothing. So now it's dawn. Day is breaking. It's beginning to get light. And they're done. You know, they're, they're going to call it quits. When somebody calls to them from the shore and says, Have you caught any fish? <laughs> And when they say no, he says, 
throw the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, they don't know who it is yet because it's still pretty dark and, you know, he's about a football field away. I just have to think it was really annoying for these professional fishermen to be told by some bystander, hey, you know, if you just fish on the other side of the boat, you'd catch fish. So, but for whatever reason, we don't really know, they decide to humor him, they, they go ahead and do that. And the net is become so full of fish, they can't even haul it in. And that's when John, the guy who wrote this book, that, that's when he figures it out. And he turns to Peter and he says, it's the Lord. It's Jesus. And Peter, he's convinced. What does he do? He jumps in to the lake so he can swim and get to the beach as quickly as possible to be with Jesus. And when the other guys, you know, finally show up dragging the net full of fish, they see that Jesus has made breakfast for them, and so they sit down to eat. And that brings us to verse 15 of chapter 21, where the conversation begins. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. I'll just insert here the language Jesus uses of stretching out the hands and being led somewhere you don't want to go. That was descriptive of crucifixion. He's, he's telling Peter he's going to die the way he did, crucified. And then after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who would also lean back against him during supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? This is John. He's referring to himself. So Peter, when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I would like to just have you think with me for a few minutes about this question that, Jesus, that Peter asks Jesus. Why does he ask it? Why does Peter look at John and ask, Lord, what about him? Well, Peter has just been told that the Lord has a plan for his life 
that includes him dying a horrible death. And so, Peter wants to know what the plan is for John's life. And he wants to compare. Why? Why do you suppose he wants to compare? I think it's because he wants to know if he's being treated fairly. He wants to know if the plan for John's life is better or worse than the plan for his life. And if the plan is better, I think he's saying, uh, Lord, that's not fair. I, I, think, I think you need to reconsider. I think you, I, I want a better plan for my life. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I definitely can. I think it's an inclination many of us have, and I got the word to describe it called what aboutism. What aboutism? It's the tendency to compare God's will for my life with his will for someone else's life and, and decide if things are fair or not. So, you know, you, you look at your life and something's going on and you don't like what you see. You know, things are hard. Things are disappointing. Uh, maybe really painful. Scary. Maybe even just flat out devastating. And then you look at somebody else's life <clears throat> and things just seem to be going great for them. Things are going way better for them. And you wonder, Lord, what, what about this? What, what, about, what about him? Why is your plan for their life so much better than your plan for my life? It's a pretty natural thing to do. It's very dangerous, though, because it can lead easily to some really negative things, like self-pity, you know, just feeling sorry for yourself, ingratitude, you know, not appreciating the good things that God has given me that I don't deserve. Envy. Despair. Or here's one. Something good happens in somebody else's life instead of kind of you know rejoicing with them and being happy about it, feeling kind of resentful. Hey, how come they get that and I don't? And the, here's the biggest problem of all. This, this is the biggest problem of all with that. It's, it's this assumption we have that we are capable of deciding if God is treating us fairly or not. As if we have all the necessary information, as if we've got all the necessary wisdom to reach an accurate verdict, which is incredibly arrogant because we're basically playing God at that point. We're putting ourselves in His place we're not even remotely qualified. And here's the problem with that. It's not just wrong, because, you know, God is God. We're not. It's not just wrong. It's completely unhelpful. Completely unhelpful. Comparing your life to someone else and asking, hey, what about, what about him? What about her? How come their situation is so much better than mine? That will never help you in your hard times. It won't bring you peace. 
It won't make you happier. It won't make you more content. It will not motivate you to be more kind, more compassionate. It will not deepen your relationship with Christ. But it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do. It, you can just think of all kinds of situations. You know, I can think of, okay, here's a couple that they really love the Lord and they are seeking to follow Him and they really want to be parents and, and it's not happening. And then there's somebody else who doesn't seem to give a rip about God or anything and they have kids just like that. Hey, they don't even want them. Or someone who's living responsibly, wisely, they get some terrible illness. And over here, somebody's living a completely irresponsible life, and they're just healthy as a horse, whatever that means. <laughs> or, here's one, somebody working really hard at the job, being very faithful, you know, hardworking, diligent, and they get passed over for a promotion that goes to somebody else who's got the right connections. And you look at that, and like Peter, you want to ask, Lord, what about them? Why them and not me? And Jesus, look at his response, okay? Now, you might think it's a little severe, but it's really quite gracious when you consider what Peter has just... Peter has just called him Lord, and then question his leadership and when we do that when we question his fairness we're really questioning his goodness and so jesus could have responded far more severely but instead he says the thing that peter needs to know that will actually help him face his future with confidence with courage and peace. So he says, Peter, if it's my will that he remain, if, if it's my will that John remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And I think if we'll get what he's saying here, if we'll get what he means, it's a powerful antidote to this whataboutism. So let me, let me paraphrase. Let me paraphrase what he's saying. Basically he's saying, Peter, why are you comparing my plan for your life with my plan for his life? Why, why are you looking at him? Don't look at him. Don't focus on him. Keep your eyes on me. Remember me. Remember who I am. Remember what I've just done for you. Remember everything that I've promised you. Look at me and trust me to work it out. Trust me to make it worth it. You just keep following me. Now that's getting a lot out of two words. Follow me, but when you look and see what the rest of this book, all that it says, all that it teaches about following Jesus, I believe that's completely justified. So, here's the lesson. Here's the lesson for us from this conversation. You could call it the Easter cure for whataboutism. 
Actually, that's what I called it. Now, before I give it to you, I'm going to warn you. It, the first part of it rhymes. That was not intentional. I didn't try to do that. It just happened. And so you might hear it and go, oh, brother, that's really contrived. Okay, just roll with it. Maybe it'll make it more memorable. I don't know. It's just it's what happened. Okay, here it is. The Easter cure for whataboutism. When life feels unfair, don't look around and compare. Look to Christ who died and rose again for you, for me. When life feels really terrible, and it feels unfair because, you know, it's not looking the same for you as somebody else, but don't look. Don't, don't look around and compare. Look to Jesus who died and rose again for you. And those last words, who died and rose again for you, those are not just, you know, extra words thrown in there for literary effect, for balance. They are essential. In fact, they're the key. It is because Jesus died and rose again for us that we can actually face hard times with hope and peace and joy. If we trust Him. And if we follow Him. But to get that, to really get the, to get the power of this, you've got to understand what it means that he died for you and what it means that he rose from the dead for you. So let's take them one at a time. All right, first, Jesus' death. What does that mean? It means he has a great plan for you, for me. A great plan. Now, if you were to ask pretty much anybody who's even slightly familiar with the Christian message, what motivated Jesus to die on the cross? I think most people probably say the same thing. In fact, let's test it out. If I were to ask you, what motivated Jesus to die on the cross? You would say he was motivated primarily by? Love. Love. Yeah, that's it. That's actually a great, solid biblical answer. Look at John 15, 13. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He's talking about what he's about to do. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, undeserving, Christ died for us. So God's love was the motive uh, for Jesus going to the cross. However, it's really important to know that his love for us includes more than just loving feelings. It also includes a loving plan. Or to say it another way, he not only wants what is best for us, he has a plan for pursuing what is best for us. And so, and Jesus' death is really the central key to this plan. Okay, it was not some unforeseen tragedy that Jesus died. Yeah, it just could, you know, it couldn't be helped. No, it was key to God's plan to accomplish something awesome for those who would trust Him. So I want you to look at something Jesus prayed for 
the night before he was crucified. So this is just hours before Jesus goes to the cross. Look what he prays for. This is John 17, 24. Now he's praying for those who would come to believe in him and follow him. And he says, Father, I want those you have, you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Why does Jesus pray for that? Why does he want that? Why does he want us to be with him and to see his glory? That is, to see his, all of his goodness and his beauty and his majesty on display. Why does he want that for us? Because he wants us to be eternally and deeply happy. Because nothing less than that will satisfy us. See, because we were made for that. You and I were made to see and savor and delight in and enjoy the glory of God. And nothing else comes close. Now, we, we, you can get just a glimmer of that by, you know, when you see something really great, something really beautiful. You know, this is a great time of year to be talking about this because you're driving on the road and all of a sudden, you know, there's all these cherry trees or plum trees or whatever they are and they're all in bloom and it's just like, wow. Or, or you see some jagged mountain peak and uh, snow covered and you think, wow. Or you look at the Grand Canyon or something and there's something in you that just stirs and says, that is, that is awesome. That is, and, and there's this twinge of joy you feel that's just that is just the merest little whisper of what we are meant to enjoy forever the glory of god and see jesus is the full expression of god's glory on display he is the invisible god made visible titus 2 13 Look what he says. We are waiting for our blessed hope. That means happy hope. The hope that makes us happy. We are waiting for this. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself. Now here he connects, it to, he connects that plan to His death. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Hey, this is so good to get. He died for us, not just to forgive us. Forgiveness is not the end. It's the means to an end. What's the end? It's so that we can be His. His people. Be with Him. See His glory. And be satisfied forever in His presence. Being forgiven is just getting our sin out of the way. So this can happen. So see, the cross shows us just how serious God is about His plan to give eternal joy and satisfaction to those who trust Him. It took the death, it took the death of the sinless, perfect, dearly loved Son of God in order to accomplish this plan. That means that if you 
and I belong to Jesus by faith, He will do whatever it takes to make this happen. To get you there. No matter how impossible, no matter how messed up your situation feels. Look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son... He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? What does that mean, give us all things? It means do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to give you, to get you to the goal. To make it happen. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Therefore we do not lose heart for our light and momentary troubles. Now, when you read that, don't think Paul, or the apostle there, is like minimizing, you know, light and momentary, right. You know what I'm going through? It's not light and momentary by experience. It's light and momentary by comparison. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving, are achieving, are working for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, I just had a mental image there, the outweighing. It's like on the one side, you put, I don't know, a chipmunk. And on the other side, you drop a blue whale. The chipmunk goes flying. That's what's going to happen to our light momentary troubles. And they're actually working for us. God is using those to bring about the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So when His plan for you feels terrible, feels unfair, feels completely random, painful, awful, so much worse than His plan for somebody else, that's when you have to remember His great plan for you that He died to accomplish. That's how much He loves you. You'll never know how much God loves you by looking at your situation. The way you know how much God loves you is you look at the cross and know what that means and know what He's bringing about. See, Peter here for a moment, he, you know, he just kind of forgot what Jesus had just done for him on the cross or else he forgot what it meant. It meant that Jesus had a great plan for him that he was willing to die for. And he's got a great plan for you and me too if we'll trust Him. So, Don't look around and compare. Look at Jesus. Remember what His death means. And then the second part of this is His resurrection. Jesus' resurrection means His plan for you will happen. It will happen. It's not much good to make great plans if you can't bring them about. Man, I can make all kinds of great plans. Doesn't mean I can pull any of them off. But Jesus by rising from the dead, proved he can do whatever he chooses to do. Look at Revelation 1.17. Jesus said, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Let those words sink in for a minute. What a statement. I'm the first and the last, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. That is, he has ultimate authority over all life and death. 
Matthew 28, 18, after rising from the dead, Jesus came to them and said, All, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You know, it's really astonishing. Sometimes you can hear words like that a lot, you know, if you come to church a lot or read your Bible a lot. You, you just kind of get used to them. It's astonishing how much power, how much authority Jesus claims to have. Like here, he's talking to Peter, and he just says, so matter-of-factly, you know, Peter, if it's my will that John remain until I come again, what is that to you? Who talks like that? Who talks about their will as if it's so certain there's no point in questioning it? Who talks about their plan to come again as if, you know, that's just, it's just a given. It's going to happen. You know who does? Jesus does. The same one who has a plan for each person who trusts him. And he's got a plan and he's got all the power to bring it about. And you might think, well, what if I mess it up? Because I've sure done some stupid things. What if I just mess up the plan? Or, what if somebody else tries to mess up the plan? Okay, look at Jude one twenty four. To him, note the next three words, who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence, there's the plan, without fault and with great mediocrity. Eh, joy. Great joy. That's the plan. Oh, but this can be so hard to remember. Can it? When life gets ugly, when it gets really ugly, it is really hard to remember this. But when we really don't like how things are going, for us, the thing to do is not look around and compare our situation to somebody else's. The thing to do is look, look to Jesus who died and rose again to give us the best possible future. And he said, follow me. Well, what does that look like exactly? What does it look like to follow him? Because maybe you're here today and, you know, you're not yet a follower or you're not sure what that means or... What does it mean to follow Jesus, Okay. It, it means a relationship, a certain kind of relationship, and we can actually see three parts of it here. First part, you accept who he is, who he claims to be. When you understand who he claims to be, you acknowledge who he is, and you honor him for who he truly is. And he's, so he says here, follow me. Okay, who's me? Who's me? Who's he talking about? Well, if you don't know, let me, let me encourage you. This is the thing to do. Go back and read the whole book of John. Read it. Because John spent three years up close and personal with Jesus. He saw what he did. He heard what he said. He'll, he'll tell you who Jesus is. But in the meantime, I want you to notice something 
about these things said about Jesus. These things that are said about Jesus are crazy and even blasphemous if he's just a mere man. Okay, so he tells Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. He's talking about his people. Wait, your sheep? That's the way the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob talks about his people. Look at Psalm 100. Know that the Lord is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. And here's Jesus saying, feed my sheep. Whoa. Then Peter says to Jesus, I love this, Lord, you know everything. Wait a minute. No mere human being knows everything. No angel knows everything. No creation, no created being knows everything. There's only one who knows everything. And if Jesus is only a prophet or a good teacher, he should have corrected Peter at that point. He didn't. And then Jesus says, Peter, follow me. Which means, keep your eyes on me and do whatever I tell you. There is only one who can demand our total obedience. And Jesus is saying, I'm him. So, accepting who he is, that's the first step in following him. Second, second thing it looks like, second part, you receive his forgiveness. Now, I love this. The first part of the conversation, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Why does he do that? Does it remind you of anything that Peter said three times? If you know the story, three times he denied Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Jesus is giving Peter the assurance that all is forgiven. He gives him a threefold opportunity to profess his love for him. And then he says, okay, so feed my sheep. Do what I've called you to do. Look at that. He's saying, all's forgiven, Peter. All's forgiven. I've restored you. Now, do what I've asked you to do. Here's the thing. Peter had to come to Jesus to receive that forgiveness. See, he could have stayed away. He could have gone off somewhere and hid. And yet, when he sees him on the shore, he jumps in the, in the lake and swims as fast as he can give him. He had to come to Jesus to receive his forgiveness. The same thing. He could have said, no, no, I'm too terrible. I'm too awful. You and I can do the same thing. Say, no, Lord, my sin's too big. Nope. To do that is to miss the whole point of the cross, which is that Jesus took upon himself our sin and experienced the justice of God for that sin so that he could put his righteousness on us. So, we receive that forgiveness by coming to him in faith. So John 3.16, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. 
If you've never received his forgiveness, you can do that today. You just have to come to him and ask for it. It's a gift. Just ask him. Third piece to following Jesus, you obey his instructions. It's actually a very simple principle. Simple doesn't mean easy. Simple means easy to understand. If we trust him, we'll follow his instructions. We'll do what he says. That's one of the things we seek to do as a, as a church family, as a, a community of Christ followers. We want to encourage each other to trust him more and more and to live our lives in, in more in greater and greater obedience to him. If you don't have a church family, if you're here as a guest or, um, you know, just happen to stop in or whatever, if you don't have a church family, we would welcome you to consider this one. So that, that's the lesson. When life feels really unfair, don't look around and compare. Look to Christ who died and rose again for this awesome plan and says, follow me. And following him looks like acknowledging, accepting who he really is, receiving his forgiveness, and obeying his instructions. Now, just a minute, I'm going to pray. But before I pray, I'm going to give all of us a quiet moment so that you can pray if you'd like. And uh, if you're here today and, and you are not a follower of Christ, but what you've heard, you know, it's clicked, and you sense the Spirit of God saying, yeah, this is for you, then I would encourage you in this prayer time just between you and God, the exact words are not the issue because God knows your heart. And you could say to him, Lord, uh, as best I understand it, I, I want to know you. I want to receive. I want that forgiveness, Lord Jesus, that you died to give me. I need your righteousness. Please come and do that for me. And uh, help me. Help me know what it means to follow your instructions. Help me do that. You could begin that journey today if you'd like. Or if you have questions about that, uh, those Connect cards that Tyler was talking about, there's a, one you can scan the QR code there and fill it out on your phone, or you can fill it out on a piece of paper. You can either leave it on your seat or drop it off at the table on your way out. If, you, if you'd like to talk to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus, just write something like that on the back. Give us your contact info and somebody will contact you or, or talk to the person you've come with. Or if you're here today and you're already a follower, but you realize you've been looking at the wrong thing. You've been looking at other people. You've been looking at your situation and deciding, you know what, God's really giving you a raw deal and you're, you're feeling resentful or, or upset or depressed or whatever. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to say, Lord, okay, I get it. Get my focus back on you. So I'm going to just be quiet, give you a minute or so. You can pray just between you and God, the quietness of your own heart, and then I'll, I'll finish and close in prayer in just a minute. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for revealing your glory in the person of your Son, showing us your great heart, your love, and your holiness. Sin had to be atoned for, and Jesus willingly paid that price of atonement. So thank you, Father, for our Savior. Lord, help us. Lord Jesus, help us follow you. Help us receive all you have for us and do all that you want us to do. We pray in your great name. Amen.